Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. Uh, Most semesters I teach our Introduction to History course that goes through 1865. And for today in this podcast, we're going to examine Herman Melville's first book, Typee. And um, if the name Melville sounds familiar to you, I would say it's probably because you were assigned to read Moby Dick, perhaps in high school. And I say assigned rather than read for a reason. If your high school class was like mine, um, it was the most unread book and uh, of our junior year. And in fact, I found people had trouble getting through the spark notes. Um, but there's a lot to offer from, from Melville and telling us a lot about life in the 19th century. And today, to help me discuss Taipei, I have two of my colleagues from UTEP, Dr. Brad Cartwright, who's also in the history department, and Dr. Brian Yothers, who's from the English department. And I believe you're also involved with a journal dealing with Melville. Uh, Yes, I'm the associate editor of Leviathan, a journal of Melville studies, which is the journal of Melville studies. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. So I'm kind of curious, Brian, uh, how did you first get interested in Melville? Okay, well, so the first time that I tried to read Melville was when I was about 12. I started reading Moby Dick, uh, and I have to confess that I was defeated. So it took a few years. Then I came back to it in college, and I loved Moby Dick, and I loved Bartleby the Scrivener, both for the same reason. The great thing about Bartleby the Scrivener is, as you may know, it's the story of uh, a man who's hired as a Scrivener, basically a human photocopy machine, and he really discombobulates his his boss by repeatedly telling him, I would prefer not to, whenever he's told to do anything he doesn't want to do, which is someone who was working a variety of jobs to put myself through college, I thought sounded great. Um, And Moby Dick, I was completely into the Captain Ahab uh, cosmic rebel thing. Uh, You know, if a man would strike, let him strike through the mask. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. That seemed like the kind of thing that was really exciting to me. Fair enough. How about you, Brad? How did you come to Melville? I think my experiences were a lot like yours, Sue. Um, I I was assigned to read Moby Dick in high school, And I don't remember having finished it. Um, I remember thinking that it was too dense. And I also remember thinking that I don't believe my teacher was very interested in the book either, which probably tainted the experience some. Um, So when I got to graduate school, I was studying uh, Manifest Destiny and Westward Expansion into the Pacific, uh, more specifically Americans who came west by sea, And it was there that I became introduced to Melville. And if you've spent any time looking at journals of sailors, they can oftentimes be very boring, uh, just day after day of noting which direction the wind was coming from. Uh, So Melville provided great relief in terms of some very interesting writing on his experiences in the South Pacific. So since you're a historian of the Pacific, I was wondering if you could Provide us a little context. Tell us a little bit about the role of whaling or how people saw the sort of expansion into, you know, past the continent into the the Pacific. Sure. Um, You know, American colonists, I don't believe before the American Revolution, they were really thinking much about the Pacific Ocean at all. It must have seemed to be a very distant, um, a very large 
something that was out there that there were there just wasn't a lot of knowledge about, um, except for maybe China and the Eastern Pacific, excuse me, Western Pacific. But after the American Revolution, when the British closed their markets uh, to uh, the Americans, the, the, the new United States, merchants had to look elsewhere for new markets to sell their exports. And so the Pacific became the ideal target. Um, at that time, the New England whale industry had been somewhat profitable, um, dating back to the early 18th century. But as they overfished the Atlantic coastline, they had to move deeper into the Atlantic. And over time, uh, they made their way all the way down to the South Atlantic and into the Pacific. Well, the British sort of dominated the, whale, the Pacific whale fishery until the War of 1812, when Captain David Porter uh, disguised himself as a British vessel and would go and uh, pull alongside these British whalers and then pull out his guns and say, you have now been captured. And so I believe he captured 12 British whale ships during the War of 1812, and the British were never able to come back to the Pacific in great force, and the Americans were able to take over the Pacific whale fishery. Um, and so it was in... Well, I can start back a little bit with, with Melville, who was born in 1819 to a comfortable family that had been involved in, his father was involved, uh, he was a merchant uh, selling, importing, I believe, French goods uh, over overseas uh, from Europe. And he eventually, he, he went bankrupt. And I believe the story goes that he went insane, perhaps, and died shortly thereafter, this was 1832. And so by 1837, when you have the Panic of 1837 that, that destroys the American economy, uh, Herman Melville at that point no longer was living the comfortable life that he had grown up with, with his father, and he had to go and look for work. He did a number of odd jobs. And like so many young men in that era, he eventually came back to the Atlantic coastline and looked to the sea for work. And he, uh, in 1840, he embarked upon the Akushnet, a whale ship bound for the Pacific for a multi-year voyage. And so that would get us, get Melville into the Pacific. So Brian, I was kind of wondering if you could tell us um, a bit about the book and kind of uh, summarize that. Okay, so the book is loosely based on Malville's experiences. Malville at various points claimed that it was very closely based on his experiences, um, and certainly aspects of it were. He did, so he goes on the Akushnet, they sail around uh, Cape Horn, the southern tip of South America, uh, and he sees a great deal of the world. He realizes he does not much enjoy uh, being told what to do by a ship's captain. Uh, and so when they get to the Marquesas, which is really quite remote, he decides that he's going to jump ship. Uh, and he ends up living quite briefly, actually, among the Taipei people who were rumored to be cannibals. Now, we know that there are a lot of exaggerations worked into the story. He did not, for example, stay there as long as he describes in Taipei. Um, a lot of the stories that he has refer not to his experiences, but to the experiences of 
Captain David Porter uh, and of Charles S. Stewart, a missionary in the South Pacific. So he drew a lot of materials from the experiences of others. But it's based on his experience being on a whale ship, uh, becoming dissatisfied, jumping ship, and then spending time among indigenous people in the South Pacific. And what's really striking about it is that he doesn't uh, kind of reinforce conventional narratives about the necessity for people in the South Pacific needing to be converted to Christianity, for example, about colonialism being a blessing to the natives. In fact, when he writes about Hawaii, he says that the missionaries have, uh, and this is a direct quote, civilized the indigenous people into draft horses and evangelized them into beasts of burden. So he has some really powerful attacks on uh, the practices of imperialism and Christian missionary activities uh, in the Marquesas. Um, part of what makes the book quite popular, and it's by far the most popular of his books during his lifetime, much more so than Moby Dick, um, is the fact that he writes quite frankly and explicitly about matters of sexuality. Uh, he writes about nudity. There's a famous scene that involves uh, a young man uh, who's an islander uh, making a fire, except it's very clear that it's also about masturbation. Uh, and so there's this really kind of comical element associated with sexuality. Uh, and then this very forceful rejection of uh, a lot of elements of 19th century American respectability. Uh, so Herschel Parker is one of his uh, most influential biographers, has referred to Malville as America's first literary sex symbol. And Taipei is the novel that creates America's first literary sex symbol. So, like, would you say he's trying to um, just create, like, a like an adventure story? Is he trying to make an argument about uh, colonizing? Is it um, a critique of, you know, sexuality? I mean, what do you think's going on in his head? You know, this is the first novel. And so what is he trying to get, get done? Okay, so I think it's a little bit of all those things. And I think most of all, he wants to write a book that's going to sell because he wants to finally start to make a living. By the time he starts writing Taipei, he's 25 years old. He really hasn't amounted to much to this point. Um, you know, he, he goes on several uh, ships, including another whale ship. Uh, spends some time in Tahiti, a large portion of which he's actually in jail for being involved in a mutiny. He's kind of a beach bum in Hawaii, and he ends up setting bowling pins for a while. Uh, finally gets back to the United States on a military vessel. Um, and all of these things form subject matter uh, for his books. But he, he wants to be an author. He wants to make money. He wants to be able to get married. Um, but he also has a vision that doesn't always fit with the goal of just being a successful author. And this becomes really important when he's writing something like Moby Dick, which is a very ambitious book, as anyone who's read it knows. Um, but even in Taipei, uh, he's 
travel writing is the most popular genre at his time. Uh, so he's doing something that's meant to be popular, but he's also uh, wanting to make a case for a different way of life uh, than the way of life that many of his contemporaries are leading. And that sense, Taipei, uh, a few years before the fact, is a little like Henry David Thoreau's Walden, right? Where it's telling people that there's a different way that they can live. And the lifestyle of Marquesan Islanders gives a different way to live, right? And the criticism of colonialism, the criticism of missionary activities, uh, the criticism of capitalism and uh, Western modes of work, all of those kind of work into that, the idea that there can be a different and perhaps a better way to live. And Thoreau, by the way, read Taipei. So these things come together, right? Part of Thoreau's vision in Walden has to do with uh, the idea of the Marquesan Islands that Melville created in Taipei. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, listening to you, um, who... Who would have read it? I mean, is it adults only because it's sort of provocative? Were women reading it? Was it a, a novel of the middle class? Okay, so it's it's published uh, initially in England by Murray's Home and Colonial Library, and then after that in the United States. Uh, and so the idea with the English publication is that this is going to go out into the empire, right, and is going to be read throughout the British Empire. Um, in the U.S., it really catches on, and and it's interesting to me actually that uh, you know you can see why a book that involves a lot of nudity and sexual freedom, you know, would speak to a lot of young men in the 1840s, right? But what's noteworthy is that it also seems to have spoken to young women, because we have letters that young women wrote uh, saying, you know, that they had spotted Herman Malville uh, and that they were wondering if he was missing his Fayaway, who was uh, the Taipei woman who uh, he describes the narrator Tamo as having a kind of relationship with, and, and who also is uh, in a famous scene uh, nude holding up a sail over a canoe, um, which, by the way, not allowed uh, in Taipei culture. Melville kind of makes this up. Uh, but this is one of the most iconic scenes in the book is the idea of her standing there nude in a canoe uh, holding up a sail. Um, but women seem to have responded as well to the idea that uh, there could be alternatives to the sexual mores of, uh, you know, the northeastern United States in the 1840s. Uh, and uh, Melville's status as a literary sex symbol in the 1840s is largely among young women. Um, by the... Uh, by the latter portion of his life, it kind of gets turned around. As people are rediscovering Taipei in the 1870s and 1880s, it's often young men who we, we would now describe as gay, although that term uh, wasn't in circulation at the time, uh, who are really interested in him. So he's both kind of an early heterosexual sex symbol in American literature and an early gay sex symbol in American literature. Okay. So I'm kind of curious about uh, how he might have been received at the time. Was, uh, you know, it's a first novel. Was Taipei read, like, well-reviewed, um, well-purchased? What, what do you know about the book itself? And Well, and, you know, as Brian pointed out, 
um, it, he had a hard time getting it published in the United States initially. And through the help of his brother, he was able to get it published in London. Um, the, the reviews initially were pretty good. Uh, they were mixed, um, but it, it wasn't completely panned in any way. Um, I think a lot of American publishers felt that it was probably too exotic, too erotic, uh, too much of a critique of American culture. Um, I, I, I know one reviewer, uh, he did say that if Melville chose to spurn the great hardships and evils of civilization and return to the Marquesas, that he would not disagree with the stomach of the man that eats him. And so you can kind of get a sense from that how some of his reviewers felt. But the book did go on to sell uh, 6,000 copies in two years. Uh, so it was, it was well-received at the time it was published. Um, I'm wondering if Brian or, or Brad, uh, either of you could get me um, a little bit of understanding of Melville as a person. I mean, was he... Uh, well-respected as a writer uh, throughout his life? Was he, did he play well with others? Was he liked? Um, how does he kind of fit into this um, antebellum writing world? Uh, sure, I'm happy to talk about that. So, so Melville often didn't play well with others, hence the fact that he wound up in jail in Tahiti in his early 20s. Um, so he uh, he definitely had problems with authority that showed up throughout his career. On the other hand, he could be a very intense and devoted friend. I mean, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, for example, was an older writer whom he deeply admired. Uh, based on the letters between them, there seems to have been, at least on Melville's part, perhaps somewhat of an erotic dimension uh, to his attachment to Hawthorne, but certainly he admired Hawthorne immensely, and he inscribed Moby Dick to Hawthorne in admiration of his genius. Um, he's, you know, in, in his early years, from 1846 to the early 1850s, he's a popular and successful author. Taipei is the most popular of all. Omu, his second novel, doesn't do badly. He falls off a bit after that, but even his fifth novel, White Jacket, is influential enough that it's read on the floor of the House of Representatives as evidence for abolishing flogging. Uh, in the U.S. Navy. And Moby Dick, uh, which we now, which now is the novel we really know him for, while it's not a big success, it does all right, just not well enough to kind of keep Melville's career going. Um, and then his next novel, Pierre, which is his first novel that doesn't deal with the sea, but deals with topics like incest, uh, and groups of people living together uh, who aren't married to uh, who aren't married to each other. That's the one that really kind of wrecks his career. And there's uh, a famous review that Herschel Parker found about twenty odd years ago that just uh, read Herman Melville crazy as its title. Uh, so he went from being quite well respected. Um, he actually married the daughter of Lemuel Shaw, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the State of Massachusetts, uh, Elizabeth Shaw. Um, he was able to buy himself a farm. But eventually, uh, his finances fell apart. Uh, he finally had to sell the farm, Arrowhead, where he had lived just outside Pittsfield, Massachusetts. 
and moved back to the city where he was a customs inspector in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s until his uh, retirement. And his star kind of faded. He went from being someone who was famous in his late 20s and early 30s to someone who really wasn't all that known except by a select through few up until his uh, death in 1891 at the age of 72. And it was really only 30 years after his death that he was recovered as a major American author. Um, in, in the 19-teens, uh, Raymond Weaver, who was the biographer who really recovered him, uh, was advised to write a dis dissertation on him, and he was told uh, by Carl Van Doren, who was his advisor, that Malva was kind of a minor, cont uh, uh, a minor figure kind of along the lines of James Fenimore Cooper. So that's how he's viewed in the 19-teens. By the end of the 1920s, he's viewed as being the greatest author in American history, hands down. So it's quite a turnaround after his death. So he's able to to support his family from writing. Um, it's not like family money or her family money. But but he's, I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but yeah. he's functioning like, does he sell to to magazines. Yeah. So at first, uh, his early novels are enough to support him up through the early 1850s. After Pierre, which kind of wrecks his novel writing career, he starts writing for magazines. And that's where Bartleby the Scrivener, Benito Serino, his more famous short stories come in. He does well enough with that that he's able to keep their head above water. Uh, after 1857, though, when he writes his last uh, full-length novel, The Confidence Man, uh, Billy Budd is a novella, and it's after his death. Uh, so The Confidence Man is his last full-length novel. After that, he really is kind of living off of uh, his in-laws' uh, patience <laughs> to a certain degree. Uh, and then, of course, during his long career as a poet from the late 1850s to 1891, he has to support himself as a customs inspector uh, in New York City. And he seems to have taken a lot of pride in his job as a customs inspector, even as he's doing things like writing perhaps the most substantial volume of Civil War poetry alongside Walt Whitman's drum taps, uh, battle pieces and aspects of the war, and then writing the single longest poem in American literary history, Clarel, a poem and pilgrimage uh, to the Holy Land, which is 18,000 lines long. That's a 500-page poem. Uh, and his wife Elizabeth writes about it, that it's an incubus of a poem because it has destroyed our happiness because he's <laughs> writing so uh, obsessively on it. So, yeah, his, he has a very difficult relationship with money and with his struggles to make money through his writing across his career. Um. So one of the things I'm wanting to accomplish um, with these podcasts is to get a better feel or an understanding of the people that we're talking about, um, perhaps maybe somewhat in a 21st century uh, mindset. And so one of the questions I'm asking all of the guests for the various podcasts is if they can imagine uh, what kind of hashtags might Herman Melville uh, established for himself if he's writing across different social media platforms. And so either to promote or defend or to illustrate himself. But um, Brad, what do you think? 
Well, in, in the context of Taipei, um, the first thing that comes to mind is hashtag civilized, not savage in terms of his view of the Taipei people. Uh, but then I think it might change as you get towards the end of the book into hashtag nevermind kind of savage because of his Melville's inability to get past uh, tattooing and cannibalism. Um, in terms of how he might describe himself, um, hashtag underappreciated, hashtag nobody gets it, were the first two that came to mind. <laughs> so I'm kind of struck just by your uh, uh, mention of kind of equating cannibalism and tattoos. So like- in, in Taipei, uh, Melville really comes to appreciate uh, the indigenous culture. Um, but there are two things that he just can't get around. And one is tattooing. Um, it's sort of identifying, marking yourself as a savage in doing that. And, of course, cannibalism. And, and at the end of the novel, um, he discovers that that is going on amongst these people. And it's one of the reasons that causes him to uh, to look for an escape from the island. Okay. How about you, uh, Brian? Any good hashtags for Melville? Okay, so I've got a few. Most of them are, to one degree or another, taken from Melville because he has a gift for memorable phrasing. Uh, so, of course, uh, the two most famous lines from his works are, call me Ishmael, right? The first three words of the first chapter, Looming's in Moby Dick. Uh, and I would prefer not to, what Bartleby says repeatedly in Bartleby the Scrivener. <laughs> Um, A few others that I think really stand out for him include one that he used in a letter that he wrote to Nathaniel Hawthorne, where he said he said this about Nathaniel Hawthorne, but really it's true of Melville himself. Uh, He said that Hawthorne is a man who says no in thunder and the devil himself cannot make him say yes. Uh, And I think hashtag no in thunder would be about right for Melville. Um, I also think hashtag damp and drizzly November in my soul, which comes from Ishmael's self-description, is very apt for Melville because he was someone who could be quite melancholy and really had a capacity for thinking about suffering deeply. Um, And much of his writing is responding to questions of suffering. I'd also say hashtag Job's whale, because that's how he describes Moby Dick. And the whale, he's really concerned with dealing with profound philosophical questions about why human beings suffer, even as he's also trying to tell uh, a very contemporary story at his time about whale hunting. In relation to Taipei in particular, I have three. One is that line, civilized into draft horses, um, because it reflects his really fierce attack on imperialism and the mistreatment of indigenous people. It also suggests his sense of what you know, our society and culture might be doing to ourselves, right? Maybe we too are civilized into draft horses in some ways, right? Um, And he's resistant to what he sees as the dehumanizing effects of our civilization. Um, A pretty obvious hashtag for Taipei is something that he himself objected to, which is hashtag man who lived among the cannibals. He wrote that he hated the fact that wherever he would go, people would refer to him as the man who lived among the cannibals. 
Incredibles because he wanted to be an author who was kind of more than an 1840s reality star, which was, in a sense, how he was starting out because of Taipei, right? People uh, were titillated by the idea that he had lived among the cannibals. And then finally, Mr. Fayaway, because his fame was so much defined by his description of this beautiful young Taipei woman with whom he's associated. So all of those, I think, would be good. With Melville, of course, you know, there's no end. Hashtag Vesuvius for an inkstand, uh, which referred to his tendency to write uh, with uh, just unstoppably sometimes. See, and I'm just going back to your your statement of him as being a sex symbol um, and thinking, you know, if People magazine existed in 1846, would he have been the sexiest man alive? But it, but it looks like there's a lot of depth to Millville, and he's he gives us a good idea of how to understand sort of a broader perspective of the country, um, looking at manifest destiny beyond the beyond California, but into the ocean. And uh, I'm always a big fan of looking at literature of the day to to better understand the historical events. So thank you so much for talking to me and. Um, you know, I, as I said, I didn't love Moby Dick, but maybe I'll give Taipei a, a try. And give Moby Dick another try. It'll be well worth it. I was going to say, maybe it's better now that I'm not 17. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.